This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Warning. It's not warning us about the dangers of smoking or the dangers of drink driving or breeding mosquitoes, but it's warning us of how we need to respond to the coming of Jesus Christ. So it begins in chapter 3, verse 1 to 2, and it says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, the warning here is that they need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. The first thing we need to do is we need to ask ourselves the question, what is the meaning of the word repent? Repent is not just a sentimental word. It's not just an emotional word. It's not feeling sorry, but it literally means a radical transformation of life. Uh, It's the idea of where you're going in a certain direction in life and you're oriented to a certain direction and you have to turn around to go another direction. It reminds me of where uh, more than once in different countries in Malaysia and once when I was driving in America, I went down a wrong, a one-way road, right? I found myself driving the wrong way direction in a one-way road and I realized immediately I had to turn around quickly to come around to where I was going opposite to my original direction. And that's literally the meaning of repent, to radically turn your life around, to reorientate your life, and to change your life in terms of the actions and not just your heart. And it says there in verse 1 and 2, that John came preaching, repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, as we look at this passage, we have learned in chapter 1 and 2 that Jesus, the person of Jesus, is unique and special. So Jesus was the Christ. He was the unique, everlasting, eternal King. He was God. He was Emmanuel, God with us. His name was Jesus. He was the Savior. But as we come to chapter 3, many years have passed. And Jesus is now an adult. And Jesus is about to begin his ministry. And As he begins his ministry, he ushers in, in a dynamic and powerful way, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, the Christ, the everlasting king, is beginning his work and the kingdom of heaven is breaking into this world. And that's why if you look at some of your Bible translations, it says that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's near. It's spatially near and chronologically near. Now, in verse 3 and 4, it continues to read, This is he who was spoken of the prophet through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. So before the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there is a messenger, there is a preparer of the way of Jesus. So, um, you know this Christmas song, and the Christmas song uh, goes like this, right? You know, hark the herald angels sing. Uh, Do you all know what this means? 
So I, you know, I remember when I was growing up, I always wondered, you know, what does this mean? Like, is the angel called Harold? Right? You know, Hark, Harold the angel, he's singing. Right? No, it's not, right? Because the word Harold is actually a messenger. He is someone who announces and prepares the way for a king. And that's exactly what John the Baptist is doing. Uh, I mean, I guess in today's world, we don't really have heralds. Uh, the closest I can think of is, you know, sometimes when you're driving around the road, for those of you who are driving or you've taken a taxi, and all of a sudden, there are these police cars and there are police motorbikes coming and they speed through and they stop the traffic and they, they sort of ask you to move to the side so that some, you know, VIP goes past you. Well, in the same way, this is what John the Baptist is doing. He's like coming ahead of the very important person, Jesus. And he's preparing the way for Jesus. He's making straight paths for people, for Jesus. And he's not asking people to go to the side of the road. He's saying, look, they need to repent to receive the king. Now, if you look at your NIV translations, there is a very important word that seems to be missing. And that word is the word for. Because in verse 3, which is up here, it says, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, for or because this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. Now, that means that when John the Baptist came, he didn't come in a general way. He didn't come because he just happened to be there. He came because God had planned in his sovereign control of history that John would come preparing the way for Jesus Christ. Now, Isaiah was actually written 800 years before the birth of Jesus. And he foretold of a messenger who would come before God himself. And therefore, Jesus is this God who comes into this world, and John the Baptist is preparing the way for him. But we are even told in verse 4, of the way John dressed and what he ate. Now, these are not just random facts that, you know, Matthew felt, okay, you know, this is pretty interesting. Add a bit of color to John's person. The reason why we are told about what John wore was because it's meant for the reader to be reminded that there was someone like this who God had promised would come before the coming of Jesus. So in Malachi chapter 3 and 4, which is like the last book of the Bible in the Old Testament. So if you look at Matthew, right? Matthew is like the first book of the New Testament. You just have to turn two pages in my Bible and you're back in Malachi already. So in the last book of the Old Testament, the last prophet before the coming of Jesus, Malachi had said, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And then Matthew, uh, Malachi chapter 4 says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land of a curse. So what Malachi was saying is, before God comes again, he would send a prophet, someone like the prophet Elijah. 
And how would they know what Elijah looks like? Well, 2 Kings chapter 1, this is what Elijah looked like. They replied, He is a man with a garment of hair and with a leather belt around his waist. The king said, That is Elijah the Tishbite. So the reason why Matthew tells us why John the Baptist wore this clothes made of camel hair and he had a leather belt around his waist was because he's trying to make us aware that John the Baptist is this type of Elijah. The next slide, the type of Elijah who would come before God comes into the world, before Jesus comes into the world. Now this is really amazing because if you look at the next slide, that means God actually 800 years before the coming of John through Isaiah, 400 years in Malachi before the coming of John, actually prepared the way for John the Baptist to come, to prepare the way for his son, the Christ. And that helps us to understand why is it in verse 5 and 6, John was received so with such great expectation in verse 5, People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Because for 400 years, there was this great expectation. Right? For 400 years, there was no prophet in Israel. And now there was a prophet, John the Baptist. Finally, the promised one of Elijah had come. Finally, people saw this prophet and they were coming to him from all over the region. Okay, so the next slide, they came from all over Judea, they came from the north in the Jordan region, they all came to listen to John the Baptist. So they came to John the Baptist, and John would preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The people would confess their sins, and John would baptize them in the Jordan River. Now I want you to notice something, that the confession of sins was a precondition to the baptism. So it seems as if the confession of sins was like a symbol of their repentance because unless you confess your sins, you can't repent of it. How can you repent of something that you don't recognize as sinful? So they confess their sins, John heard the confession, and then he baptized them in the river. Now two things I want to draw your attention to, which is Baptism was not something regularly practiced by the Jews. It was not something which they did commonly. I mean, all the Jews are circumcised, the males, yes. Baptism was not something which was practiced among the Jews. The second thing also is that this baptism of John was an interim, intermediate, temporary, preparatory baptism. Right. So our baptism today is a different baptism from the baptism that John practiced. John was a baptism of repentance. But today when we are baptized, we are baptized into the Holy Spirit. We are baptized into Jesus Christ. Okay, So it's a different sort of baptism. But if you look here in verse 7, all the people that came to John confessing their sins, John baptized them. But in verse 7, there's this big but here, right? But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. 
And do not think for you that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Now, why this big difference from the people to Pharisees and Sadducees? The Pharisees and Sadducees were the religious leaders of the day. They were like the priests, the elders, the deacons, the pastors, the popes and the reverends of their day. They were like the religious elite. They were the ones who had gone to theological college. They were the ones who knew the Bible really well. They were the ones who practiced it really well. Why did John treat them this way? He calls them a brood of vipers. Uh, Not a very complimentary thing to call anybody. And really it's an image of, I guess if you think of vipers and snakes, of people being sly and devious and sneaky and evil and wicked. So it seems as if for the normal people, he would just hear the confession and he would baptize them. But with these Pharisees and Sadducees, he demanded more than just the verbal confession of sin. He demanded fruit of repentance. He wanted real living change in their lives. He saw into their hearts and recognized that there was no real repentance in their life. Now, probably part of the problem was that for the Pharisees and Sadducees, they saw themselves as good enough already. You know, we're good enough. We're, we don't really, really have to repent. We're just coming to do the religious thing. Someone once gave an illustration to me, which I thought was quite powerful. He said, some people invite Jesus into their heart. But you know, they invite them into their heart like a house guest like an Airbnb. So, you know, I've uh, recently gone to Airbnb overseas. And when you go to the Airbnb as a house guest, there are a lot of rules, you know. You can't change the furniture around. You can't, you know, obviously take the beds out and put it in the living room, put the, you know, the dining table in the bedroom. I mean, you can't throw away stuff. You can't mess it up. And in many ways, that's what, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and even ourselves can be like. We invite God, or sorry, we invite Jesus into our heart. But He is our guest. He comes into our heart, but we demand that He doesn't mess up our life. You know, He does, we don't want Him messing around the furniture in our life. We, and definitely we don't want Him throwing away our DVD collection or throwing away this and that. So Jesus is just a guest. In our life, he's not the master of the house. We are still the master of the house. And I think for many way, in many ways, that's how the Pharisees and Sadducees treated God and Jesus. They domesticated God, they domesticated Jesus. Say, okay, you can come into our lives, but it's on our terms. But John the Baptist says, no, 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 that's not what repentance is like. Repentance is where you transform your life and make God and Jesus the master and ruler of your house, your heart, your life. In verse 9, we can see this attitude in the Pharisees and Sadducees because they said, we have Abraham as our father. They assume the inside track into heaven because 
if Abraham is our forefather, and if Abraham inherited the blessings of God, and if our forefather Abraham inherited the kingdom of heaven, then surely we will inherit it because we are his blood. Now, I'm not sure whether this is really where John the Baptist was baptizing, but apparently if you go to uh, the Middle East, if you go to Israel, this is there's a place where they, they say this is where John the Baptist used to baptize. Now you can see that there are rocks here, right? In the river. And so probably many commentators say, you know, John the Baptist was baptizing in the river and these Pharisees and Sadducees came and they were high and mighty, thinking they were very powerful and religious and godly and assuming that they were the children of Abraham and therefore saved. And John the Baptist points to these stones. He says, you see these stones, these inanimate stones? God can raise up for himself a family of Abraham out of these stones. There is no inside track to heaven. There is no inside track to being saved. But instead, in verse 10 to 12, the only way to get to heaven is to produce good fruit. Because in verse 10 to 12, he states very, very clearly, the axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, and burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire. Now it's very clear, the words of John. There is no inside track into the kingdom of heaven. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down. The axe is already at the root of the tree. The only way the warning goes to receive the kingdom of heaven is repentance. Now John himself tells us that the reason why this is so is because God himself has come down in the person of Jesus. He says, look, after me is one much more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Now, if you think in society, the difference between, in ancient world, the highest to the lowest was between a free person and a slave. Right, The slave exists to serve the free person. Now, John the Baptist, as we've seen earlier on, was a great, great man. He was a prophet in the type of Elijah. He was the prophet in fulfillment of years, hundreds of years of prophecy. But as great as John was, he says he is lower than the slave because he's not even worthy to carry the sandals of Jesus. Can you conceptualize how great the difference is? Jesus is here. John doesn't even consider himself worthy to carry the sandals of Jesus. And therefore, he says, look, be warned, be wary, because when Jesus 
comes into this world as the king, you need to respond to him because he brings judgment. And that's the thing. When the kingdom of heaven comes into this world, you can't just sort of ignore it because it will either impact you in salvation through repentance or it will impact you by judgment in fire. You cannot be untouched when Jesus comes. And the image here is a terrible image of fire, unquenchable fire. Now again, we don't know whether this is a real image or whether it's a metaphorical image. But whatever it is, it's meant to put the fear of judgment into us. You don't want to be burnt up by this fire. Now it's also interesting because if you look at this passage carefully, as we look at every passage carefully, who is the one holding the axe? Who is the one with the winnowing fork in his hand? It's Jesus. Now I think the part of the problem in this world is that the world only sees Jesus through the lens of Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2. So uh, I went to my relative's house for Christmas and uh, my relative, uh, she's from England actually, and she always cooks, you know, turkey and everything uh, for Christmas lunch. And in her house, she has this huge, bigger than this table, uh, like model of the nativity scene. Like, you know, there's this like uh, manger about this big and then you've got this figurines of Jesus and then the wise men and the little animals and everything. And then you've got the baby Jesus there. I think that's a problem because in a sense, we always see Jesus as the baby infant Jesus. We don't see Jesus, the judge with the axe in his hand and the winnowing fork. There is no fear of Jesus, the king coming into this world who brings his kingdom in a dynamic and powerful way. But it's a scary image because if you look here, the next slide, we often think of the axe cutting down the tree. Right? I mean, obviously, maybe because I don't know many of us who swing axes to cut down trees, but we just imagine, you know, you get this axe and you cut down the tree. But if you read carefully, it doesn't say that Jesus cuts down the the trunk, that's right, see, I don't even know the tree so well. The trunk of the tree, right? I was going to say the stem of the tree, but it doesn't sound so good. The trunk of the tree, the axe is at the root of the tree. It means that you're going to actually cut out the whole root of the tree itself so the tree will never ever grow again. The tree is completely destroyed. And also, it is a picture of complete and utter destruction. And that's the same parallel to the image of Jesus with the threshing fork. Again, unfamiliar image to us. But even today in, the, in, the, in, in many parts of the world, after they uh, harvest the wheat, what they do is all the, see, I don't know all the terms, right? But all the grain, everything is all on the ground. And then what they do is they, when it gets windy, they use the fork and they throw everything up into the air and the heavier grain falls to the ground, but all the shaft blows away and then it gets collected you gather up the good stuff the wheat you're going to eat 
and you throw away all the shaft. And you throw it away and it gets burned up. And the picture here is very clear. Jesus comes. He brings his kingdom. Will you be gathered up like the grain? Or will you be burned up like the shaft? The difference between the shaft and the grain is how do you receive the king? How do you receive Jesus? Will you repent and let Jesus be master of your life? I think that if John the Baptist started a church, he wouldn't be very popular. Definitely not in today's world. Because, you know, nowadays people don't really preach this sort of fire and brimstone sermon, right? They will say, oh, you know, you should come to Jesus because he gives you meaning in life. Jesus died. He just came to save you. Jesus makes life more meaningful and gives you fulfillment. John the Baptist's message is very straightforward, right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. You don't repent, you go to hell. Now, um, when I was, went to visit my son in Oxford, it's quite interesting because it's quite busy. There are many busy roads and it actually it's super duper crowded. Right? Um, gives you, it's, it gives you a headache. There's so many people. Right? And I was quite interested because uh, uh, my wife was shopping and she was taking quite a long time, so I was just sitting outside, as men are, you know, usually do when it takes too long. And yeah, there was this black guy there. He wasn't British. He was a black guy and he was preaching. And uh, I listened to him. And I thought he was very logical. He was very sensible. He wasn't shouting, screaming. He wasn't a lunatic. He wasn't drunk or something. He wasn't the saliva smeared over his face. He was preaching the gospel. And he was preaching about repentance. But I noticed the way people look at him and they looked at him as if he was a bit crazy. And I think this is the way people sort of see people who preach repentance. Okay, so the next slide. And when you sort of see these messages, instinctively we feel a bit uncomfortable. We feel, oh, you know, too in your face. But that's the message of John the Baptist, right? In a sense, he's just saying, repent or you'll burn in the fires of hell. But I wonder whether when we read this message, we really take to heart uh, the, the, the confrontational message that John is really preaching. Repent. What repentance really means. Or else you face judgment in fire. What does it really mean to me? And whether we really take it in. In verse 13, it goes on to say, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now this passage is difficult 
And I'm sure for those of you who've done your Bible study, you have found it difficult because why does Jesus need to be baptized? John practiced, practiced a baptism of repentance. But Jesus had nothing to repent of. He was sinless. He was God's son. Why does he need a baptism of repentance? And that's why John doesn't want to baptize him. And that's why John also recognizes, look, you are much greater than me. Why do I need to be baptized by you? I need to be baptized by you instead. So, he initially refuses to baptize Jesus. But Jesus says, let it be so now it is proper for us to do this, fulfill all righteousness. And John recognizes after Jesus speaks to him that the right thing to do is for John to baptize Jesus. It is right for John because John's role is as a herald to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. Now, after the baptism, John recedes from the scene. You know, he's like, the actor, which we don't really hear much of anymore, he recedes from the scene, he goes into the background. But through his baptism, we see that Jesus is affirmed, endorsed as God's son and begins his ministry. So Jesus' baptism is part of God's plan for him to begin the ministry. It's like, it's like that switch that is flipped so that Jesus begins his ministry. Now, two things happen after Jesus is baptized, he, he comes out of the water and something happens that nobody happens to nobody, nobody else, right? A voice from heaven is heard and the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus. Now, I'm of the opinion that it wasn't just Jesus who sees this, but the crowd sees this. John the Baptist sees this. It is for the benefit of the crowd. It is for the benefit of John the Baptist and others. Because it's like a divine endorsement. So, you know, if you ever drink, you know, Twining's tea, right? You notice at the top there, there'll be this small little writing, right? Which is like some sort of royal endorsement, right? You know, like, you know, by Her Majesty or something. Maybe she drinks it in the morning or whatever. And says, this is good tea. But here we have a divine endorsement where God says that Jesus is his son whom he loves and is a delight to him. Now, we already know this, that Jesus is God's son. But I think that there is more to Jesus' endorsement than just, oh, okay, okay, he's God's son, he's loved by God, you know, he's ple he pleases God. It actually, I think, goes back to the Old Testament and tells us a lot more about who Jesus is. So on the slide here, you can see, next slide. Oh, right, it says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of your earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So here, the Son of God is the everlasting King and He will rule universally, eternally, comprehensively. 
But the second half of the quote is actually different, very different from the first part which talks about King Jesus, the divine. Because it comes from Isaiah chapter 42, which says, Here is my servant whom I behold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, which he has, right? The Holy Spirit comes on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And this same servant is, is described in Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the first part of the quote talks about Jesus the king. But the second part of God's words speak of Jesus, the suffering servant, the one who dies for us, who will die for us on the cross. So we began in chapter 1 and 2, and we learned three things about Jesus, right? Jesus is God, Jesus is King, Jesus is Savior. But now, in chapter 3, we learn two more things. Jesus is judge, and also Jesus is the suffering servant. And that explains the name Jesus. How does Jesus save people from their sins? Because he dies for them as a suffering servant. So when we come to this part of the last verse of Matthew chapter 3, we see how now the reception of Jesus determines your future. Because if you receive Jesus and accept him and repent, then he comes to you as your suffering servant. He will die for your sins and you will be gathered up into the kingdom of heaven. If you do not repent and you do not accept Jesus as your suffering servant, then he comes to you as a judge. And therefore, the warning is clear. Which is the destination for you? Oh, you didn't show the next slide. Yep. Okay. So in conclusion... Uh, many, many years ago, in 2005, there was a very big hurricane in New Orleans, Hurricane Katrina. Now, I was quite interested to read, I um, can't remember whether I saw it in a documentary or something, but five days before the hurricane hit uh, uh, New Orleans, right, they were already warning of how big this hurricane would be. Two days before the hurricane hit on the Monday, the 29th of August, uh, the mayor of New Orleans uh, gave a voluntary evacuation warning. He said, no, everybody, you should get out of the city, right? You should get out of the city. On the morning of Sunday, 10 a.m., the day before the hurricane hit, uh, the mayor gave a mandatory evacuation order. That means you must leave the city. You have no choice, right? This is, everybody must leave the city. It was quite interesting because I read that actually uh, the night before uh, the, the no the hurricane actually hit, hit there was a train 
which left New Orleans, and when it left New Orleans, it was half empty. Because people refused to leave, they didn't take the warning seriously. And as a result, 10,000 people died and were injured. In the same way, actually it's quite interesting because whenever the hurricane is hitting America, whenever you watch CNN, there are always people who never leave. It really amazes me, right? But I guess you can do whatever you want, right? But you can take the warning seriously or you, you can ignore the warning. John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus and he brings this warning, right? You need to repent to receive the king. You need to repent to prepare for the kingdom of heaven. So the lesson for us today is, do we take this warning seriously? Do we repent? And how do we repent? Do we allow Jesus to be the master and ruler of our heart and our lives? Or are we like the Pharisees and Sadducees, where we treat Jesus like a house guest, like an Airbnb? Right? Okay, you know, we have Jesus, but we're not really repenting because don't rearrange the furniture in my life. Because the stakes are very high. Right, the kingdom of heaven for eternity, you're gathered up into that kingdom. Or will you be in unquenchable fire for eternity? Will the axe cut you down completely because you failed to repent and receive the king? Let's go to God in prayer. Dear, fires, we come before, dear God, as we come before you today, we pray that you may help us to see that the fires of judgment are very real. And that as Jesus has come, he has brought the kingdom of heaven, and as he has gone to the cross, he is truly the suffering servant. Dear Father, we pray for ourselves, that for each of us here, we will truly repent. We will understand what it means to repent. We will repent, not just grudgingly or reluctantly, but wholeheartedly allow Jesus to be the master of our hearts and of our lives. Dear Father, we pray that and acknowledge we live in a world which is so distracting, which puts off the reality of the kingdom of heaven. But we pray that we may take to heart what it says here today in Matthew chapter 3, that the kingdom of heaven is a real thing and that it is near, it is at hand. And with the coming of Jesus, it is closer at hand than it has ever been. And we need to be repentant so that we can have the confidence that Jesus will be our suffering servant. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.